Good morning. Hey, we have a special guest this morning. And his name is John. And uh, he grew up in this church. He's here spending time with uh, my oldest son. John, would you stand, please? This is John, and let's uh, welcome him. It has been a long time since he has graced these halls, but he's been in this church and has lived in this church. His dad was on staff with us for many years, and it's great to have him here. He is, just stay standing for a moment, if you would, John, he is doing Bible translation and church planting in an island nation off of Africa. And uh, so we uh, welcome you, John. Glad you're here and excited to be able to connect with you today. So thanks, John. Okay, and I'm trying to find my message, and all I'm getting is uh, baseball scores and football scores, and here we go, here we go. Oh, what is a caricature? A caricature is a cartoon-like drawing of a real person. They exaggerate some features, distort others, and the end result is a humorous cartoon. Now, a good caricature displays a duality, right? It both resembles the person so that you can recognize them, but it also looks like the real thing. Here are some popular caricatures, and I'm not sure what order Tyler has these in, right? Exaggerates, distorts, partly funny, partly cartoonish, Mark Zuckerberg. So not only business leaders, but religious leaders, the Dalai Lama get caricatured, and of course, politicians. Bill Clinton, and not to be outdone, Donald Trump, and finally, Barack Obama. Right, we've all seen these caricatures. They exaggerate, distort, we laugh, and maybe we cry at these. Now, one author noted that a caricature would never pass for a photograph. If a policeman pulled you over and asked for your license, and if on your license was a caricature, well, you're going to be in worse trouble than you were for speeding. Place a caricature next to a photograph, and the distortion becomes obvious. Right? But seriously, kidding aside, could a caricature have a deep and profound impact on our lives? For example, what comes to your mind when I say the name God? Is it possible that it's more caricature than reality? Containing some truths, but other attributes that are distorted and exaggerated. In our final message of our series, wait, that's in the Bible? I want to dig into the commonly held belief that the God of the Old Testament is all about justice and wrath, even violent and bloodthirsty, while Jesus of the New Testament is all about love and acceptance. Which is it? These pictures just don't mesh. And if the pictures don't mesh, if they are not consistent as the Bible authors intended them to be, then it may be that we are relying more on caricature than truth. Is God temperamental? Are his love and justice irreconcilable? Well, this impression 
left unexamined is damaging to Christians and non-Christians alike. Why, you ask? Why is it so important? Well, here's why. Because how can you trust in a God with those lingering, unanswered questions? You have to hope he does not have a bad day or get up on the wrong side of the bed. And the switch flips from Jesus to the Old Testament God. If he is temperamental, you can neither enjoy or delight in him. You have to walk on eggshells around him. And who can predict his moods? Could it be, could it be that this caricature is the reason that you don't experience more of the overwhelming abundant life that God offers you? Could this caricature be the reason sin so easily enslaves you or his peace is so elusive? Could it be that you are not convinced he is worthy of total and complete trust? Has this caricature of a God who is temperamental and rash subtly formed an image in your mind, a default image that sits there unexamined so that when all is on the line, when everything's on the line, you ultimately put your trust in, well, yourself. So how do we address this caricature? Here's what we're going to do this morning. Two points to our message. One, we're going to look at one story, just one, on the kindness of grace and grace of God in the Old Testament. And then secondly, the judgment, the justice and judgment of Jesus in the New Testament. And in the end, our cartoonish figure should give way to a true knowledge about God the Father and Jesus the Son. Knowledge that is the basis of a real and vibrant faith. And it is a vibrant faith based on knowledge that leads to a meaningful experience with God. You know, that's our prayer for all of you. And experience, you would experience an abundance and overflow of his spirit into your heart. God was meant to be experienced relationally in your bones, deep within your bones. You're not a machine. You are a person designed to love and be loved. And correcting this caricature, I think, will go a long way to get you there. So let's pray. And then we'll uh, ask here the Holy Spirit to help us this morning to tackle this caricature. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for everyone here. And you know exactly what they need this morning. And you know exactly why they're here. And I ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would bring the exact message, the exact impression, the exact experience that each one sitting here needs this morning in order to connect more deeply with you, to have that sort of in-your-bones relationship with you, where your spirit is like a deep well within us, springing up, bubbling over like a fountain, leading to eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name, Jesus' glorious name, amen.
Amen. Okay, open your Bibles, if you would, to Joshua chapter 2. I think it's page 187, if you use the text in front of you. Though I'm going to read from a slightly different version, but you'll still be able to follow along. Joshua chapter 2. And the context is, this is the beginning of Israel's taking of the promised land. And the first city is Jericho, a walled military fortress, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. Now this story is surprising on so many levels. Somehow Rahab connects with these, and she connects and harbors these spies. Did she tell a half-truth there? Likely, but that's a different message for a different day. She is Israel's intel. She is their insider. She has a name. The fact that she has a name means she is important to the story. She is not invisible. Yet by all appearances, she is not a candidate for God's grace. Let's read on. Turn to chapter 6, verse 17. Joshua here is giving final instructions before the, 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 they proceed. He says to Israel, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies. She hid the spies we sent. And then reading on, chapter, verse 22 in chapter 6. Joshua said to the two men who spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lived among the Israelites to this day. This is God's word. Now Rahab and her family are saved. And why is her story told? Well, one reason is that she's an example of God's grace and kindness amidst a judgment. He saves the person who would, by our economy, have least expected so. And on top of that, what you may not know is Rahab is an ancestor of guess who? She's an ancestor of the Messiah. We know from Matthew's, we know this 
from Matthew's genealogy showing the ancestral history of Jesus. Now she's a unique mention as genealogies in the ancient world were reserved for the male line. But Matthew bucks tradition and mentions multiple women. God's kindness here is amplified by something else we see in the story. But let me take a moment to explain what I mean. You see, some here argue that Israel attacking and defeating the Canaanites is an example of racism and ethnic cleansing. Yet in the very next chapter, God does something that would contradict that. He judges his own people in the same way. You see, his judgment is consistent. There is a man named Achan who hid some of the war plunder for himself in his tent. Remember how God said all the plunder was to be devoted to him. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Achan subsequently, if you read on, faced a trial of exposure, was convicted, sentenced, and died for his sin. Uh, not only the sin of himself, but also the attempted cover-up. Now the writer seems to have something in mind for us here, and it is the contrast between these two characters, Rachel and Achan. And it reveals something about the heart of God. Think of the contrast between the two. She is a woman. He is a man in a man's world. She is a Canaanite. He is a Hebrew, the chosen people of God. She is a prostitute. He is respectable. She should have died, but survived and prospered. He should have prospered, but he died. Her family and all she owned survived. His family and all he owned perished. She fears the God of Israel. He does not fear the God of Israel. In the textbook, uh, uh, Grasping God's Word, uh, the writers make these final conclusions. She has only heard of God, yet believes. He has seen the acts of God and disobeys. She has become like an Israelite and lives. He has become like a Canaanite and dies. The contrast reveals something about the heart of God. And isn't it true that kings showing kindness in his stories, right? This is a... This is a story that continues to be told. You might remember the old movie, A Knight's Tale. Many, many years ago, Knight's Tale, William Thatcher, played by Heath Ledger, is a young squire who has always dreamed of being a champion knight and winning jousting tournaments. Unfortunately, as a peasant's son, it is impossible for him to become a noble. However, when his master dies an untimely death, William passes himself off as, remember, Sir Ulrich von Liechtenstein. Let's say it together. <laughs> Great name. And he sets out on his quest to become champion of his sport. In one tournament, William 
Aka Sir Aurich, spares his wounded opponent, and he advances to the next round without inflicting further injury. But he's got a nemesis, Count Adhamar, and he views William's mercy as weakness and vows to defeat him. So when William goes back to London, he faces this same count in the World Championship. And Adhamar discovers, though, William's secret, that he was actually born a Thatcher's son in London's Cheapside district. Tipped by Adhamar, the authorities arrest William and put him in public stocks where the townspeople make fun of him. But a man concealed in the crowd emerges from the shadows into the light, removing his cloak. It is the same man who was Dignity was spared by William in a former tournament, the knight known as Colville. William and the rest of the crowd are shocked as Colville reveals his true identity. He is actually the Black Prince, the king's own son. He speaks to William. What a pair we make, both trying to conceal who we are, to hide who we are. The prince orders that William be released and he addresses the crowd. This man may be of humble origins, but my own personal stories have discovered he is descended from an ancient and royal line. This is my word, and it is beyond being contested. He then turns to William and speaks tenderly to him and says, Now, William, if I may repay the kindness you once showed me, take a knee. And he removes his sword, and he says that by the power vested in me, and by my father, King Edward, and by all the witnesses here, I dub thee Sir William. Right? The kindness of kings still stirs our hearts, doesn't it? It's captured in the human imagination. And yet God's kindness is even greater, for he knows not only our humble origins, but he also knows that we are naturally rebels towards him who have done violence to his good world. And yet he still pursues us, seeking to redeem us. Now, I want to go to our second point, the justice of Jesus in the New Testament. But let me linger for a little bit, if I could, because for some of you, there's still an elephant in the room that I've not addressed. And that is simply God called for the burning and the destruction of the city how does that work? How can you believe in a God, let alone trust a God, that orders that kind of violence? Now, in the past, on numerous times, I have sought to try to answer these difficult questions, and they are good questions, causing many of us who take the Bible seriously to wrestle with them. What I'd like to do here is just, uh, in summary, make four points that we've made before, uh, but I'm going to use the, the uh, verbiage here of Dan Kimball, and I'm just going to roll through these four points. They'll be on the outline. I'll comment a little bit, and they will help answer this question. Here's the first one. God's intention in the conquest of the Canaanites was not to randomly destroy, but to clear space for his presence as the people of Israel were returning. To their land. The command of God was for a limited time and place. And it was also God using Israel as a judgment to these nations. 
We like to picture the Canaanites as these lovely agrarian people sipping tea and peacefully tending their gardens and playing croquet, happily supping with their children around the dinner table. Of course, the only children left were the ones they didn't sacrifice to their God in a horrible ceremony. They were reputed for their violence and their brutality. And unlike holy war, unlike holy war, Israel does not assume military or spiritual superiority. For example, Israel is not militarily superior. They are the new kids on the block. They were fresh out of slavery. If you like the musical Hamilton, they were outgunned, outmanned, and outplanned. As Washington sings, describing the chances of the Continental Army against the British. And that is really maybe a better way to think about it. I mean, their military strategy at points included, like, singing choruses and taking long circular walks. <laughs> Listen, friends, Israel is not the bully pushing people around here. They were the kid being bullied, and now God fights for them. And spiritually, neither are they superior. God said he chose them. Why, Israel? Because they were the least desirable, the weakest of the ancient people. So there's no spiritual or military superiority in case Denise. Second point, when God did order violence and death, it was always with extreme patience and plenty of warning to give the people opportunity to repent and turn to him. In some cases, this was hundreds of years of patience. It was never genocide or ethnic cleansing. That patience, that patience of God, by the way, remember, it, it meant that his own people suffered during that time of patience, causing many of their complaints to God. Read the Psalms. That's many of their complaints. And by the way, the same is true today. God continues to be patient, allowing, so to speak, evil to win temporarily. And in that time, we, his people, suffer. But it is because he is patient, wanting all to come to a knowledge of him. 1 Timothy 2.5 Thirdly, a lot of boasting war rhetoric was used in reports of Old Testament battles. A lot of taunting, a lot of bragging, a lot of exaggeration that were not actually unhinged slaughtering of the masses, but strategic military strikes mainly targeting the military and their leaders. Now scholarship is showing that more and more that the ancient language of war and its hyperbole, its exaggeration. So there is a reasonable question of exactly what it means when the Bible reports the complete annihilation of a group of people. As a matter of fact, there are examples. When the Bible records this group of people was annihilated, but we meet them several chapters later. We meet remaining survivors several chapters later. But even if this is true, of course, it does not answer all of our questions. 
even if the violence of Canaan was very limited and very targeted, there are still scenarios that we must wrestle with. For example, like the worldwide devastating flood, where the whole world was destroyed except for Noah and his family. So we still have to wrestle with violence and judgment that is hard for us to understand from our finite perch. I'm not trying to do away with that tension. And that's the fourth point, finally, that violence is very difficult to understand. And even one death ordered by God is horrific to grasp. Ultimately, we have to trust God and what we know of him as abundantly loving, immensely kind, endlessly compassionate, and exceedingly forgiven, uh, uh, forgiving. So if violence was used, God knows why, even though we may not be able to comprehend the reason. Again, when we come to a difficult passage in the Old Testament that makes us flinch, we have to remember this. You know, the most prolific scripture of the Old Testament, it reads like a creed. Here's one example, Psalm 86:15. We sang it this morning. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. And so when we come across difficult stories in the Old Testament by which, by nature, we have a limited background on those stories, we don't have all the information about the characters, we must run those stories through this filter of who the Scripture says God is. Okay. All right. Take a deep breath. Stand up if you want to. Do some jumping jacks. How are we doing? We did okay? Doing all right so far? Okay, we, gotta do the, we can't stop here, all right? We gotta do the second point if we're going to have the clear picture. If it isn't just gonna be a confusing, blurred picture. And that is the justice of Jesus in the New Testament. This will be a little tough for us to dig into. You know if you've been here for a while that Jesus was a great man of tenderness and of kindness. My goodness, it just ripples through the gospel stories, and we, as we reflect on those stories, we talk about it. Yet we would not be intellectually honest if we did not describe how Jesus talked about judgment and hell. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else. Did you realize that? You know, heaven and hell were not very well developed in the Old Testament, and they are a little more developed in the New. And I recognize that if you're just now being introduced to Jesus, I, I realize this is a hard topic to wrap your head around. But here's one example where Jesus talks about hell, and it's, it's said to those who think hateful and murderous and contemptuous thoughts of others. Jesus said this. Now, you have heard it said. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a contemptuous term, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Now, the exact word Jesus 
used, we often translate hell in English, was Gehenna. Sorry if you're from Gehenna. I mean, only in Columbus, Ohio would we even make that comment, right? But listen, you don't have to guess where this is. You can find it on MapQuest. It was an actual physical place outside of the city of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was known as the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom, as Joshua Ryan Butler puts it, has a dark and dangerous history. It had two primary identifiers in Israel's history. It was a place of idolatry, and it was a place of injustice. The Valley of Hinnom, Butler writes, becomes Jesus' central imagery to describe the destructive power of hell. In Jesus' day, Gehenna was a garbage dump. Its fires kept burning. Animal carcasses were thrown there, and bodies of the dead, uh, when their families could not afford to bury them, were also thrown there. An awful place, clearly an awful place. Just, just terrible. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus described it as a place where, quote, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Dan Kimball points out that in the earthly Gehenna, the maggots would die when they had eaten the flesh off of bodies. Jesus was making a graphic point that the spiritual composition of hell never ends. In other descriptions of hell, we can learn that it's a terrible place, a desolate place, a lonely place, a place of great unquenched thirst. Jesus warned that it is to be avoided at all costs. Now again, friends, this would require another entire teaching, but again, I want to just briefly address a caricature here that distorts and exaggerates. In my own study, I do not believe that the caricatures that paint God as a sadistic torturer are true or merited. This neither fits with his character nor the text itself. That being said, it should not soften our fear of judgment. Jesus clearly says hell is the consequence of rejecting God and should be feared. Now, speaking of the devil's power of destruction, look at what he said, Matthew 10, 28. Again, these are not my words. These are his words, the same kind, loving, accepting, who calls out individuals and loves them tenderly, who spoke of peace and nonviolence. The same Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As I think of the entire story Bible, I remember we've been talking about that. We need to look at the entire Bible storyline to understand its particulars. It appears to me that hell is the logical and even desired choice for the one who despises God. The inevitable landing spot from a self-first form of self-worship over bowing the knee and surrendering to a kind God. 
Many prefer that option. And eventually God gives uh, every man and woman over to their desires in the end. You see, hell did not begin in the heart of God, but began in the heart of the devil and mankind himself. You see, it's a boundary. Hell is a boundary from the city outside of Jerusalem. And that boundary is a picture of something deeper. That boundary is a recognition that the purpose of hell is to create a boundary, preventing its fury, hatred, and destructive powers from entering into the city. And what is that ultimately a picture of? It's a picture of the age to come, a new city. If we go to Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible, it describes the new Jerusalem where heaven and earth will be reunited and the Garden of Eden restored. All are welcome, right? It's radically inclusive. All are welcome. But anyone unwilling to be in harmony and to be in rhythm with God will be unable to enter. As I said before, if, if you are coming here this morning, you think, wow, it's, the only thing I knew about Jesus was the fact that he's got these really great ethical teachings and he inspired men such as Gandhi and Martin Luther King and you're throwing me for a loop here. Indeed, Jesus taught not violence. He taught turning the other cheek and love for enemies. He refused to use violence against those who crucified him, praying instead for their forgiveness. Yet, the, here's the point, what, what we must try to understand. Yet the love of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus are so strong and consistent, they also have to stand against anything that would destroy that peace that rhythm, that harmony, what the Bible calls shalom. This is his justice. And love and justice are held in his person in perfect symmetry. In the end, in the marriage of love and justice, Jesus will stand against whatever or whoever would seek to undermine his shalom. You see, this is the main problem with our caricatures. Both of them, both of the caricatures. If we dig only superficially, if we go off what others have told us or what the media portrays, what we have is a distorted character of the real person, the real thing. It's enough to make us think we know the person, yet distorted enough to repulse us. But if we dig deeper into the whole storyline of the Bible, we are surprised to find we are surprised to find that the God, God the Father of the Old Testament is not only just, but he is also full of grace and kindness. And in Jesus, the Son of God, in the new, is not only full of grace and kindness, but is also just and brings judgment. You see, our core problem is we think love and justice can never meet, or they are irreconcilable. But this simply is not true. Love and justice are intertwined. They are two sides of the same coin. Here's what uh, philosopher Nicholas Wolsterroff said. 
He said God loves the presence of justice in society, not because it makes for society whose excellence God admires, I love this, but because God loves the members of society. He loves them. And with the love of benevolent desire, God desires that each and every human being shall flourish what the Old Testament writers called shalom. This is why God loves justice. Now, Butler, uh, who I quoted earlier, he continues to describe justice, but now he describes it, the justice of God, in real space, in real time, for what it means. This is what he writes. He writes, do we treat one another as those loved by God? Do we treat one another as those loved by God? For example, he says, God loves your child. So when you abuse your child, God stands with your child and against you, receiving the blows as your fists rain down. God loves that woman at the party. So when you rape her, God stands with her and against you. As you violate her with your lust, you rape God. God loves your employees. So when you skimp on their pay in order to enrich yourself, God stands with their struggling families and against you as you enrich yourself to cheat God. Butler then concludes by writing, God stands against our injustice because he identifies in love with those we violate. God's love is more than a comfort. It is also a confrontation. God's love has teeth. And one last point as well on this. This biblical vision of justice, friends, it not only extends to the degrading of others, but it also extends to the degrading of ourselves. The things that we do to ourselves that degrade and, and hurt us. God's heart bleeds and weeps if we hurt ourselves and destroy ourselves through degrading behaviors. Now let me just go a little bit deeper into this. And again, I really like the thoughts here of, of, uh, of Joshua Ryan Butler. Because he talks here now about the love, how the love and the justice, how love and justice comes together right where? This love and justice meets, it kisses, so to speak, where? In the person of our crucified king. You see, the reality is, is that we tend to look on others as the cause of our problems, as I just talked about. Maybe you were a victim. Maybe you were on the victim side of what I just shared, what uh, Butler shares. Maybe you were on the victimized side of, it, of the equation. You know, we, we tend to look as, as, at others as the cause of our problems, but we so often don't peek inside, do we? And here's the irony, and it's so important to get, we are all friends, we are all, every one of us, both victim and victimizer, right? We're the abusers and the abused. We are the sinner and sinned against. 
We have all hurt others and been hurt ourselves. Each of us has been wounded. Each of us have wounded and been wounded. None of us can play a trump card and excuse ourselves from this mess. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At the cross, you see, love and justice kissed. That's, a, by the way, a metaphor from the Bible. How so? Because in his justice, the crucified king bore our sin as victimizers. If you're the victimizer, guess what? He bore that sin on the cross, on his own body, in his own person. He paid the debt that you deserved. He bore the justice of God in his own body. The wrath of God that we deserve fell heavily on the whole of his person. But in his love, right? In his love, he not only bore the sin of the victimizer, but guess what else he does? He also, in, as a crucified king, he also identifies us as the one who was crucified in weakness. As the one who was crucified in vulnerability. As the one who gave up his rights to be crucified, who loved his enemies, who forgave his enemies, was crucified in weakness. Guess what else? He identifies with us as victims. Victims who have been torn apart by a violent, sin-struck, and war-torn world. Butler concludes by saying, Jesus both reveals the justice of God against our sin and bears his justice on our behalf, revealing God's unsurpassable love for us. What are we? What does the cross show us that we are? We are loved sinners. As we said before, I believe Tim Keller first said it, you are likely far worse than you think you are. But you are also much more loved than you think you are. We are loved sinners. And so the question to us today is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? But the question for us today is, will you let me heal you? Will you let me heal you? Is what the king says to us. Will you bow your knee before me? Will you surrender to me? Will you trust in my goodness? And will you let me heal you? Victimizers, abusers, come to me and bow before me. Let me heal you. Those who have been victimized, those who have been abused, those who have been wounded, come to me. Let me heal you. I'm going to ask Caleb and uh, Hannah to come on up. And you can grab, if you'd like, your, your communion. As we think about the love of God and the justice of God kissing, as we think of what our crucified king did in dying in weakness, offering for us salvation, you know, this morning, this morning, maybe, there could be, there may be some of you who have never, ever before had that moment in time where you actually did stop running. You've been the rebel up to this point, and you'd never have surrendered to the king. 
but the Spirit is working upon your heart this morning, and He's trying to draw you to Himself. And when we have communion, and we say this is for believers, this is for those who have already confessed, which just means to believe in Jesus. And this morning, if you want to say, Father, I want you to come into my life and I want you to heal me. And I'm willing to begin to follow you as my king. I'm willing to stop being the rebel. I'm willing to stop running. And I don't know what it means to turn to you. I don't know how I can do it. I know I won't be perfect. None of that is required. What is required for you is to come in faith and say, Father, me. I've been before you. I've been a rebel. I've been running. I want to stop running. I don't know how, but show me how. You see, in communion, what happens is, is we, we do something that where we connect with God. And when we take the bread and the juice inside of us, it reflects the fact that we are inviting Christ, and or we have invited Christ, to come into our lives and to have this unique spiritual oneness and community with Him. A truly spiritual, but again, in your bones kind of personal experience of Him. A relationship that's inside, not just outside, where you get to know Him. Remember what I said, your faith is based on real knowledge. The Christian life is not faith in faith. It's faith in a person faith in an object, and that person is Jesus. This morning, if you've never placed your faith in him, I would just invite you as a way of saying, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Go ahead and take the communion. Go ahead and take it. We'll take it here this morning. The wafer on top is the bread, representing Jesus' body. Let's go ahead and take it together as a community now. Because Jesus bore our sins in his body, that is the basis of our forgiveness. There's a basis to our forgiveness. It's more than just God willing it to be so. In his righteousness and in his faithfulness and in his justice, he himself became a man and bore our sins on his cross. And he said, until I return, until I return, remember my promise to you and remember the forgiveness of sins that I offer, the healing that I offer. Let's take the juice together. 